Let's have God's word open us up to two passages here. Today we're going to be reading Ezra chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, and Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. So when you are ready, if you can please stand for the reading of God's word. So we will start in Ezra chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. And now if you can turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law... They separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. This is the word of God. Join with me in prayer once more. Father in heaven, we thank you that this morning as we have gathered, we have gathered by your call. And as we have joined together, we sing, we pray, we sit under your preaching because you want to equip us, shape and fashion us, and continue to reform us in our hearts to be more and more as faithful sons and daughters. God, we do ask by your Spirit you would indeed convict us, counsel us, that you would guide us and lead us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, It probably should have been noted, or maybe it was in the beginning when we started this series, uh, I know we're jumping around a lot from uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, but in the Hebrew Bible, those two books were actually one. So, uh, I know some of you guys were excited. You thought you were getting a bonus scripture every week, but we're treating it together, Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, this is the second to last sermon in this series, and this morning we are focusing on reform. And before we do that, I want to introduce you and give you a quick illustration of a man. Uh, it's in 1620. A man by the name of Jodicus van Ladenstein came onto the scene in what is known today as the Netherlands. At this point, I would try to show you a picture of this old sport, but I could not locate one on Google. You know what they say, perhaps he had a face only a mother could love. Oh, come on, that was a nice one. Ah, here comes Jodicus. No, just kidding. In 1620... JVL, came on the scene. Van Lodestein was educated by two of the most recognized reformed professors of his time. And under their guide, Van Lodestein learned the importance of not only proper theology, 
but true piety. He became a minister in the Reformed Church. This era is often referred to by scholars as the Dutch Second Reformation. By now, the effects of the First Reformation of the Church, led by the likes of Martin Luther and John Calvin, have already taken deep roots, and the theological movement, that First Reformation, was pretty much well established. However, one thing that von Lodestein recognized and noted One thing he saw that was missing in the church was not good doctrine, but this idea of good and faithful worship as it pertained to the lives and the hearts of the people who have gathered. So his issue and what he points out is not necessarily doctrine, but doxology. It's not theology, but rather piety. So in 1674, Van Lodenstein wrote a devotional book that addressed this very issue. And again, it wasn't a theological treatise. It wasn't explaining doctrines and theology and doing all the deep, intricate exegesis, but rather it was taking the doctrines of God, and as a good pastor does, helps people draw nearer in devotion to God. His concern was not simply that people would have information, but that there would be transformation. In his devotional book, a prominent feature of his contribution is a particular Latin phrase, and we have it up here for us to see, Ecclesia Reformata, Semper Reformanda. A wooden translation would be, the church reformed, always reforming, and who doesn't like a good Latin phrase? Over time, we see that this is shortened to simply Sempra Reformata. Those of you guys who have been holding out to get a tattoo, if you want to join me this week, we'll try to go and get a group discount. We'll get it all right here in our chest, big bold letters. Sempra Reformata. I expect the elders and the deacons to be in line first. (laughs) Okay. Again, the emphasis here was not simply reforming the church's doctrine as it adjusted to the culture of its day. Rather, the always reforming, the Semper Reformanda, is reference to the people of God in the ever-shifting culture of the day as to how they are worshiping, how they are practicing, how they are living out their faith. This is what Robert Godfrey says in his article. It's up here. Van Lodenstein was a reformed pietist. I love that, because often what you see after a reformed is theologian or scholar. Van Lodenstein was a reformed pietist and part of the Dutch Second Reformation. As such, his religious concerns were very similar to those of the English Puritans. They saw the great danger of their day not as false doctrine or superstition or idolatry, but as formalism. The danger of formalism is that a church member could subscribe to true doctrine, participate in true worship in a biblically regulated church, and yet still not have true faith. The part of religion that always needs reforming is the human heart. Now this is a very relevant theme we see here in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah today. 
as well as the history of the church. And did I say Azariah? Sometimes I slip. Pastor Stephen likes to make fun of me for those things. Ezra and Nehemiah. In Ezra, we see the first movement towards Reformation. And in Nehemiah, we see the second move towards Reformation. And in this short time period, we see that the people of God, as they have returned to rebuild the temple and the wall, that they constantly fail. They constantly go astray. They constantly lose sight of the goal. And whereas last week we talked about the point of returning and rebuilding, being remembering and repenting, today we're focusing on this idea of reforming. Reforming our hearts in line with God's Word. So here as Ezra and Nehemiah lead their people, their goal again is not simply doctrine or theology, but their goal is is doxology and piety, true faith. And friends, although this probably doesn't have to be said, I'll say it anyway, just because we attend or identify ourselves as a Reformed church doesn't automatically mean that our hearts are reforming in faithfulness. Our question this morning is, how does Ezra and Nehemiah address the need for reformation? And what does it say to us in our context today? So we'll look at two simple points. Reformation happens when we go back. I was laughing because as the praise leader was leading us in the song, no turning back, no turning back. And the whole time I'm thinking, oh man, the first point I'm going to make is we got to go back. But this is a different type of going back. In the song, we're not going back to our sins. First point, reformation happens when we go back. And I'll, I'll explain what that is. The second thing, and I'll conclude with the second point, Reformation happens continually. So first, Reformation happens when we go back. Back to what? Three quick samplings to help us to see. What are we going back to? Ezra 7.10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. We're told that Ezra, first, he studied God's word. He went back to God's word. Then he went back to practicing them. He did it by faith. And then he taught it as well. What did he go back to? He went to God's Word. What did he go back to? He went back to the practice of faithful, of faithfulness. What did he go back to? He went back to teaching others. Ezra 10 too. And Shechaniah, the son of Jael and the son of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. We see here, as they went back to Scripture, they were convicted on how they had broken the covenant with God. By marrying foreign women, the people have broken faith. They stopped believing. We'll go a little bit deeper in what that means soon enough. Nehemiah 13.1 On that day, they read from the book of Moses. Very quick, short clause here. But on that day, when Nehemiah brought back and endeavored for the final reform, what did they do? They read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. What were they doing? They were reading. They were going back to God's word. They were going back to God's commandments. But more importantly, they were going back to God's covenants. God's 
promises, God's plan for his people. Now, one difficult thing that we constantly see coming up over and over again in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is the issue of intermarrying. I want to take a brief moment to explore what is going on here. Though we don't have time to go deep, we'll take a quick look at it. Why was intermarrying, why was marrying foreign women in a foreign land such an issue in this time? Well, contextually, I think we have to put ourselves in their shoes for a moment. During the early phase of God's redemptive plan, he had chosen a specific people, the Israelites. And so in the Old Testament, often when we refer to the people of God, we're referring to the Israelites. God had chosen the Israelites as a holy people, and he set them aside. And God's plan was to work through this people to bring about salvation to all people. It was supposed to start with Israel and then lead to the nations. This is because it was going to be through the line of Adam that the Christ would be born. And it's through Christ that all could be saved. So if you see in Romans 1, 16-17, this is what Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So at this particular time in God's redemptive plan, we see that it is going to be through a specific group of people, God's chosen people, that God will work about his redemption and salvation so that the whole nation to the ends of the earth would come to know Christ and be saved. However, the people of God jeopardized this plan over and over again. It doesn't take much sampling to look throughout the Old Testament to see that the people of God continues over and over and over again to break God's covenant, God's vows, God's marriage, God's union with them by disobeying, by rebelling, by intermarrying. And the big issue with intermarrying was not simply marriage or some, some ethnic and, and cultural taboo, but it was really because with the foreign land and the foreign people and intermarrying came foreign gods. And oftentimes we see idols and false religion and false gods being introduced and taking rampant effect in the people of God. And so this is a big issue at this time. God's people were not supposed to be mingling and intermarrying and mixing because by doing so, it was bringing in other false gods. It was bringing in an unfaithfulness between God and his people. We should state that Israel experienced exile in the first place. Right? As we look at Ezra and Nehemiah, we're seeing them coming back from exile. But we should note that Israelites experienced exile in the first place because they constantly turned away from God. They constantly turned away, broke his covenant. And in the time of exile, instead of turning back to God, they went deeper in their sin. And we're told here by Shechaniah that they had broke faith. He is linking the intermarrying of foreign women as breaking faith, as breaking trust with God, as breaking faithfulness, as breaking covenant between them and God. 
And this is why often in the Old Testament we see when the people of God are repenting and when they're charged, it's not simple idolatry. It wasn't that they just worshipped other gods, but that it was adultery. It was unfaithfulness. It was unfaithfulness to a God who loves them, who draws near to them, who makes promises and covenants with them. And so we see here in the wake of Ezra's reform and Nehemiah's reform years later that what the people do is they go back to the word of God. You can imagine that as the people of God were in exile, that they experienced many challenges and difficulties that you and I can probably relate to. If I can implore some of the common language that was used at the height of our pandemic, as exiled people, the the Israelites were seeking to go back to normal. They wanted to go back to normal. But over time, they compromised and adapted to the new norms. They took on different women, different lives. They broke faithfulness. And they figured this is just what the new norm is, and this is just the way it is, and this is how we have to live. However, the issue wasn't that they simply wanted to go back to the way things were, right? When we saw that the temple was rebuilt, some cheered and some wept. Those who knew what it was before wept because it wasn't the same. It wasn't, it wasn't back to what was normal. We see here the people of God as they're in exile. The goal isn't to go back to the normal. Likewise, we also see that the goal isn't to just adjust and stay in the new norms. But in fact, the call for God's people is to go back to the normatives of God's word. So we see that there is a movement from the normal to the new norm, to the normatives, the standards, the truths found in Scripture. For them, here in Ezra and Nehemiah, the normative, the standards, the right way forward was to go back to the old covenant with God. It was to go back to the books of Moses. And for them, the direct and clear application of this was to separate themselves from the nostalgia of what once was and even from the compromises of the new norm. Let's look again briefly here in Ezra 10, 2-3. This is what it says. And Shechaniah, the son of Jael, and the sons of Elam addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. A difficult passage here. Again, we don't have the time to treat it with the depth that we may like to, but in these harsh words, what is happening here? Is it a mass declaration of divorce? Is it something else? If I can make a brief note here, which perhaps I hope would give us a little more understanding to the context, is that The Hebrew word used in verse 2 for marriage is not the customary word used for proper marriage. Likewise, the word foreign is the same Hebrew word that's often used as adulterous. So perhaps a better understanding of the situation is that God's people have not only broken the commandment and the covenant 
by intermarrying, but they have done so perhaps in the worst possible way of not even proper marriage, but simply living together or or dwelling with adulterous women and even starting families with them. Whatever the case is, the point is that it is a mess. It's not a clean cut, hey, this is what we should do, maybe this is, it is a mess. And in this mess, we're not sure exactly what's going on, but they're suggesting that we simply cut off and leave. And in the simplest form, that's often what we are called to do when we are in sin. To simply turn back to God. To separate ourselves from sin. I'll leave it at that, although much more can be said. But friends, how often do we find ourselves in the mess of our own sins? How easy is it for us to return to old sins, old habits, old treasures, old idols, old appetites, old rhythms of religiousness? I know for me it's very easy. However, as a people of God on this side of the cross, we are called to go back to the Word of God, just like the Israelites. For us, as many of us long for what once was normal, for many of us who have now adjusted to perhaps what we think is just the new norms, we too are called back to go back to the normatives of God's Word. But here's the beauty and the good news. You and I, we don't simply have to go back to the laws of Moses or to the old covenant. We are called on this side of the cross to go now to Christ, the new covenant that was made in him. And in that new covenant, we have good news that there is forgiveness of sins. In that new covenant, we have good news that we are made anew. And in that new covenant, we are assured that no matter how much we may fall, if we go back to Jesus, it is the way forward. Hebrews 8, 6, this is what is written. But as it is, Christ had obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. As we're sitting here digesting the difficulties of the Old Testament and what the people of God then are going through, we are at the same time blessed with the joy of knowing that as you and I are called to return and rebuild, as you and I look at this grand theme of being reformed altogether, that we are called to the normative to go back to God's Word, to go back to Christ, to go back to the good news of the gospel, to go back to Christ so that we can move forward. Saints of Eternal Life Missing Church and all those who've gathered here this day, the way forward, again, I say, is to go back to the gospel of Christ, to the joys of Christ, to the treasures of Christ, to the love of Christ, to the union of Christ, to the promises of Christ, to the new sealed covenant of Christ that was made by his broken body and shed blood. Have we forgotten already the joys and the glory of what we celebrated on Good Friday and Easter. Our call is to go back if we are to move forward. How are we to move forward when everything has changed? 
when there's a massive inflation, when gas prices are high, when there's war all around us, when we're deeply depressed and broken? How are we to move forward when many of us feel hopelessly lost, relentlessly tired and restless? How are we to move forward when we feel apathetic and dead inside? How are we to move forward when it feels like no one else is moving with us? The answer is simple. We go back to Jesus. We go back to the gospel. We go back to the normatives given to us in God's Holy Word. And this is why God's Word and prayer is so important, because in God's Word we are instructed and transformed, and in prayer we are also transformed as we depend on Him, as we're changed, as we're reformed. Kevin DeYoung here in his article writes this very simply, the motto of the Reformation was not forward, but backward, as in back to the source. You know, often in the scenes or in war, you hear, forward, onward. And I know one of my favorite lines, and some of you guys know, is press on. But we're reminded this morning that in order to press on, in order, in order to move forward, in order to persevere, we are called to go back, to go back to Christ, to go back to Him as He leads us. Our motto, church, friends, is not simply forward for the sake of forward, but it's backward, backward. Let's go back. And this is really the heart of what the Reformation was about. It's to go back to go back. The second point, and I'll conclude with this, reformation happens continually. The sad reality is that between the short time of Ezra's reform and Nehemiah's reform, the people of God continue to fall back into their sin. Right? We see in Ezra 10 that this man, Shechaniah, stands up and he proposes that we do away with all of the foreign women and their children and we make a new covenant with God. And I I need a little more time to study exactly if this is just describing the situation here or this is something that all the people of God were very anxious to follow. But but what we need to know is this. As as Shechaniah stands up and he makes this declaration that we need to make a new covenant with God. This is what we need to do. We see soon enough, a few chapters down the road, a few years later, that the people of God are still stuck in the same place and Nehemiah is having to address the same issue, that true reformation did not take place. Although the book of and the laws of Moses were read, although they studied the word, the hearts of the people were not yet reformed. And so we see in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, even though there was a lapse of time, and even though in Ezra we see the people of God seeking to make a new covenant with him, that they have failed, they have fallen short, that they've stumbled again, that they've probably adjusted to new, new norms. All the while reading and studying the normatives, There was something lacking in their hearts. And so we see here, Reformation is happening continually in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. That Reformation is an ongoing need. It's not a one-time movement. It's not a one-time revolution. It is an ongoing process. And I should note that it's a process that's not simply endeavored by the people or the church 
by our own strength or our own will or our own zeal or our own piety. How many of us have made promises? God, I'm never going to do it again. I'm coming back to you. God, I promise. God, I promise. I'll stop. And how many of us find ourselves in that deep, pitiful state of feeling guilty and stupid because we couldn't live up to the promises that we've made to God? How many of us feel guilty and ashamed and after some time just decide to walk away ashamed? Perhaps that's what the people of God experienced here as they made this new covenant, as they wept, as they promised once more in Ezra. By the time they came to Nehemiah, they thought, you know what, we haven't changed. I haven't changed. But you know what the beauty is? The beauty is, folks, that our faith in Christ, God's love for us, is not dependent on our promises to him. It's dependent on his promises to us. And this is a shift It's a shift in the way that we understand the God that calls us to worship him. As we live, as we worship, as we endeavor to be Christians day in and day out, our call is not simply to, hey, you made a promise, you stick to it, although there's truth to it. But right, many of us know that that that, that pitiful state we find ourselves in, and we fail and fail again, And some of us in that moment after the hundredth, thousandth time decide maybe it's just time to walk away. God doesn't want anything to do with me. I keep breaking my promises. You need to know, brother or sister, church, we need to know that all the promises that we make with God will often always be broken because we are sinful, we are imperfect, we are prone to wander. But the beauty and the tethering, saving grace is that it's God's promises that holds us. Reformation takes place not when we live up to our own promises made to God, but when we live in the grace of God's promises. Reformation takes place not when we live up to our own promises to God, but Reformation takes place in our hearts when we live in the grace of God's promises. It's God's covenant through Jesus that reforms his people. Here's the last thing I want to point out as we go back to this Latin phrase, semper reformata. This is what Kevin DeYoung says in his article. A small nuanced point, but I think it shifts the ground beneath us so dramatically. The Latin verb reformanda is passive, which as Horton points out, means the church is not always reforming, but is always being reformed. The difference is consequential. The former sounds like change for the sake of change, while the latter suggests adhering to the proper standard. The passive construction also suggests that there is an external agent operating upon the church to bring about necessary reform. And so as we think about reformation in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, as we think and desire reformation here at Eternal Life Mission Church and in our own daily lives, again, the motto isn't forward for the sake of moving forward. The motto isn't, I have to reform myself or reform my life. But the beauty and the call and the reminder is, when we go back to Jesus, we move forward. When we desire reformation, 
it means that we are being reformed, that God is reforming us. Folks, the bad news is that we are prone to formalism, as noted by Godfrey. That it's so easy for us, it's so easy for us to subscribe to true true doctrine, to participate in worship, yet lack true faith in the day-to-day struggles of our lives and even salvation as a whole. I'm guilty of it. It's so easy to fall into this idea of if we simply go to church, go back into the motion of it, if we sing the songs, hear the prayers, and hear the preaching, that it'll just happen automatically. The reality is, as we depend on Him, it happens as God works in us. So the good news is that God is faithful in keeping His covenant and His love is steadfast. And I believe that He will continue to reform this church and our hearts to reform it according to His will so that we may indeed be disciples in word and deed who desire to see his kingdom come and his will be done in our homes, our communities, and the world. So before we all run to the tattoo parlor to get this tattooed, Semper Reformata isn't simply always reform for the sake of reform, but it's a beautiful understanding that we are always being reformed as we go to Christ, as we move forward together as a church. Eternal Life Mission Church, let us return to Jesus and move forward together, knowing that He is always reforming our hearts. Semper Reformata. Let's pray. God, we come to you and we confess that we have made so many empty promises, that so many empty praises have left our lips without intact being intact with our hearts. We confess that many times the guilt and shame of this have left us to just wallow deeper in our hole. But we thank you that the good news of Christ is that it's not about our promises to you, but your promise to us. That in Christ you will never leave or forsake us. That in Christ we are a new creation. That in Christ you are making all things new. That in Christ you are calling a people back to you to return and to rebuild a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a kingdom where your rule is sure, your peace everlasting, your love steadfast, and your protection and provision everlasting. God, we come to you with hearts that desire to be reformed according to the normatives of your word. We come to you with hearts that we can't change ourselves, with hearts that we can't soften ourselves by simple emotions or going through motions itself. But we come to you with our hearts in our hand, knowing oftentimes it's so easily turned to stone, and we ask, will you take it and give us a heart of flesh? We pray, Lord, that you would continue to lead us by the true doctrines found in your word, but that you will continue to lead us to deeper worship and doxology, that our theology would propel us into deep and joyful piety. Lord, make us a church that is being reformed and reshaped and refashioned 
to be the beautiful bride of Christ. We pray this in his name.